I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer health topics in a smart and sometimes counterintuitive way you won't hear anywhere else. Like, what's the least amount of exercise I can do to get the benefits? Which psychedelics can improve my mental health? And how can I check for cancer if I don't have a family doctor? Top experts help me bring you what you need to know in plain language in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Manjula Salvaraja, in for Brent Bambury. This is Day 6. The ever-shifting landscape of climate misinformation. Instead of outright rejecting climate change as a hoax, these new tactics focus on undermining the science. They're not debating the science in good faith. They oppose action on climate change. The evolution of climate change denialism. That's coming up on Day 6. Today... Out in the cold. Next thing I know, I'm handcuffed. The battle over Edmonton's encampments. The show won't go on. There is a lot of misconception around this play. Why a theater festival canceled a play about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And shocking, heartbreaking, transformative. It's really hard to hear somebody else's version of your life. A new podcast unpacks the nonfiction content industry. All today on Day 6, the Saturday Storytime Edition. It wasn't ideological that the sun goes down at 4.55 before the peak. It wasn't ideological that the wind wasn't blowing or it was minus 30 and they couldn't turn. It was just a reality of a northern climate. So we need natural gas. That was Nathan Newdorf, Alberta's affordability and utilities minister. And the reason he's talking about nature and ideology is that it's been cold in Alberta. I mean, really cold, even by Alberta standards. Last weekend, demand for energy spiked. At the time, there wasn't much sun or wind. Also, a handful of natural gas plants were offline. And the strain on the electricity grid was so great that the province had to issue an emergency alert asking people to conserve energy. In the end, the grid held. But the experience sparked a lot of arguments about energy and weather and climate change and climate change policy. Now, in principle, that's good and healthy. But according to a new report from the Center for Countering Digital Hate, this is all happening as climate misinformation is running rampant on social media, making it a lot harder for anyone to evaluate those arguments or make sense of what's true and what's not. Imran Ahmed is the center's CEO, and he says climate misinformation has evolved in ways that make it possible for a lot of it to evade YouTube's advertising ban on climate denial content and to generate millions of dollars of revenue in the process. Imran, good morning and welcome to Day 6. Good morning. Now, this report focuses on a climate denialism binary, old versus new denial. What separates the two? Well, actually, underpinning the old denial and the new denial are a bunch of, of categories of types of claims that are made by climate deniers. The study was done by looking at thousands of hours of videos over a five-year period produced by 100 prominent climate-denying channels. And what we found is that we could actually split old denial from new denial just because we saw the old denial, which is the claims that climate change isn't happening and that it isn't man-made, those two dropped drastically over the last five years. So there used to be the majority of all claims made by climate deniers were about rejecting the scientific consensus on anthropogenic man-made climate change. That's dropped to a third. What's exploded 
is that two-thirds of all claims made now are actually the new denial, which is denying that solutions work, trying to undermine faith in science and scientists. And this might sound bizarre, but claiming that climate change is good for us and good for the planet. I mean, I think about what we're going through in Canada right now. We have a vicious snap in Western Canada. So this week, there were some real questions about how much wind and solar power could be brought online in the middle of this crisis. That seems like honest skepticism, not climate denial. Is that how you see it? Well, what we were seeing on these were actually counterfactual, so factually incorrect claims made by people who have cynically shifted away from saying that climate change isn't happening. And these are, of course, a 100 channels we were studying, where five years ago, they were saying climate change isn't happening. What they're now saying is, sure, climate change is happening, because scientists have succeeded in persuading people and showing them the evidence in communicating, not just scientists, science communicators, journalists, politicians, in persuading people of the reality of climate change and its man-made nature. But what they're saying now is actually that, if you, let me give you two examples. One is that electric cars, they actually use up more CO2 in their production than traditional cars. That's just empirically untrue. The second is that if we're going to replace fossil fuels with solar power, we'd have to put solar panels over the entire continental landmass of the United States. That is also untrue. Empirically, the actual the, the, the footprint of solar, of renewable energy, would be the same as the considerable footprint of fossil fuel extraction and not as environmentally devastating. How popular are these videos? Well, look, I mean, we were looking at 100 channels which generate tens of millions of dollars of revenue for both YouTube and for the channel producers if they uh, participate in YouTube's revenue sharing program. But we did do some polling to go with it, and that was extremely worrying. What the polling showed was that while the old denial has quite low belief levels, people now, generally speaking, understand the realities of climate change. That is these new forms of denial that are getting in the way of their confidence that we can deal with that crisis. And that, to me, is the cynicism of it. You know, here's the thing. Science communicators are trying to persuade people about the science. They're trying to have a debate about the facts. The climate deniers, they don't care about the facts. They're not trying to have an honest debate. What they're trying to do is stop action being taken on climate change, which is why they're able to segue so cleanly between one day arguing climate change isn't happening and when that wasn't working, they segued to, oh, yeah, it's happening, but the solutions don't work because they know that if they can undermine our hope for dealing with this potential catastrophe and certainly what is at the moment a crisis, then they can allow fossil fuels to be burnt for as long as possible. You know, it's just big oil and it's goons and they're, you know, cynical and ultimately depressing tactics. So let's talk about monetization here, because we're talking about YouTube. Yeah. And, and we're talking about these popular videos. YouTube doesn't allow advertising on videos that, that promote climate denialism. And they say that they did remove ads on some of the videos that were highlighted in your report. But they also found that the majority of the videos you cited did not violate their ban on climate denialism. What do you make of that? Well, both things are true. And let me explain. So we've said to them that, first of all, their existing rules, which because Google's has always claimed to be a green company. 
And they said, we will not monetize. People have the right to post whatever they want. Of course they do. People can post all sorts of nonsense. But you don't have an automatic God-given constitutional legal right to make money from every bit of nonsense you spout. Nor do you have a fundamental right to have a megaphone handed to you and for algorithms to amplify that into millions of timelines. And so they've said, we won't do that for climate denial content. Now, what we found is that it's not really working that well, because clearly there were still old denial videos on which ads were appearing. Ads for big organizations like, for example, Save the Children, the International Nonprofit, the International Rescue Committee, the United Nations were having their ads appear on these videos. But also, they should extend their ban, which currently only applies to the old denial, to the new denial as well. Given the new denial is now two thirds of all denial content online, and is an increasingly vital front in the battle for us to build the consensus and political will required for action on climate change. We think it's correct that they would extend that ban on old denial to the new denial as well. Now, look, we've already talked about this with Google, and I have great hope that they will make that change because not funneling tens of millions of dollars into the pockets of climate deniers will be one way of ensuring that, sure, you have the right to say whatever you want, but you shouldn't be profiting from nor amplifying climate denial content. You know, I was wondering about the popularity of the, of these videos. Uh, you spoke to that, and actually the, the numbers that you mentioned stunned me. What do you think people get out of buying into these narratives about the ineffectiveness of clean or renewable energy resources? Why do you think people want to believe this? I don't think anyone wants to believe that there is no hope. It's the it's anathema to the human condition, to what it means to be a human, which is <laughs> we're a fundamentally optimistic species that's able to shape the environment around us. And that's part of the wonder of being uh, of being alive. And I think people, you know, especially young people desperately want to have hope there's something they can do about it. What's so depressingly cynical about the way these people are operating is that they're introducing lies in order to undermine that faith that we have in our collective capacity to change things for the better. I, I find that a really dispiriting notion, being someone who cares about the future that I'm leaving my kids as well. I think the second point that's really important to make, though, is that it's not that people want to believe it. It's that these videos get algorithmic amplification into millions of timelines. Let me explain to you why. Controversial content is stuff that attracts engagement. It attracts engagement not just from supporters, but from those who oppose it as well. So lots of people are actually inadvertently amplifying it by reposting, by commenting, saying, this is nonsense, this is lies, here's the proof. Actually, by engaging with it, they're amplifying it. And that's the sinister mathematics of how social media platforms like YouTube, like X, like Facebook all work. And what that means, because we're seeing it more frequently, it starts to become normalized and it's starting to re-socialize the discourse and debate around climate change and climate solutions. And that's really, really toxic. You know, funnily enough, if you introduce a toxin into any organic system, it causes harm. And in this case, it's a toxin that's designed deliberately to destroy the hope that we can have for our future. Imran, thank you for speaking with me today. My pleasure. Imran Ahmed is the founder and CEO of the Center for Countering Digital Hate. We asked YouTube for a comment on the story. In an email, a spokesperson said this, 
Debate or discussions of climate change topics, including around public policy or research, is allowed. However, when content crosses the line to climate change denial, we stop showing ads on those videos. Here are some other stories we're keeping an eye on this weekend. I don't know how to tell other people how fast it was. My daughter was watching a movie, having a conversation, and not six hours later, she was gone. A record-breaking wave of aggressive invasive strep A is sweeping across the country. According to a new report from Public Health Ontario, six children in Ontario have died of invasive Group A strep since October. According to Winnipeg's National Microbiology Lab, there were more than 4,600 cases of the strain of strep A in Canada in 2023. That's an increase of more than 40% over the previous yearly high in 2019. Infectious disease experts are telling people to seek medical help in the case of a severe sore throat with fever, but without a cough, cold, or upper respiratory tract infection symptoms. Parents are especially being encouraged to take their children to be tested for strep infection so they can be treated before it becomes invasive. And... A new report from the Committee to Protect Journalists says Israel ranks sixth in the world for the number of journalists it has jailed. The CPJ says there are currently 19 Palestinian journalists in detention in Israel. Previously, the highest number was seven in 2011 and 2016. China and Myanmar have jailed the most journalists, followed by Belarus, Russia and Vietnam. Iran is tied for sixth place with Israel. The CPJ has documented 80 journalists killed in Israeli strikes since October the 7th and four Israeli journalists killed during Hamas's attack on Israel on October the 7th. Still to come on day six, why a Vancouver theater festival canceled a play about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I'm Manjula Salvaraja, in for Brent Bambury. No tent is safe, so our goal is to try to get all of these tents down and get people the services they need as soon as we can because it's going to get cold again. It's cold right now, and these are not a safe environment. That's Edmonton Police Chief Dale McPhee speaking on Wednesday. This week, tensions over access to housing in Edmonton continue to escalate. The city declared a state of emergency around homelessness. A lawsuit seeking to sue the city for dismantling encampments was thrown out of court. And police say they will escalate the removal of tents around the city. Brandy Morin is an award-winning freelance Cree, Iroquois, French journalist who's been covering the story for Ricochet Media. Earlier this week, she was arrested while covering interactions between police and people living at one of the encampments. Brandy, welcome to Day 6. Tanze, it's great to be here. Now, last week, you were at an Indigenous encampment while the police were dismantling it. Could you walk us through what happened? Yes. So I had been covering this Indigenous encampment for a couple of days when I heard that the police were going to be moving in to tear it down. And so I was there documenting what was going on. I was on assignment uh, with Ricochet Media, and the police asked to speak to the camp leader, which was big man. His uh, real name is Roy Cardinal. Uh, an officer advised them that they were there to take down the encampment and that they had the opportunity to leave and that they could go onto these buses. But if they did not leave peacefully, that they would be forcibly removed. And their 
encampment would be taken down anyway. So uh, Roy and the others uh, with him said they weren't leaving. The police stepped forward and started to move to arrest Roy, and a big chaotic scene unfolded. I heard people, you know, screaming and just snow flying in the air, and I had my camera rolling. And the officer that had been addressing Roy and the others came towards me and said, Move, you have to leave. And she asked me to go behind the exclusion zone that they had created, this yellow crime scene tape. It was too far away for me to be able to do my job properly. And I stated that I wasn't leaving. A couple of minutes later, next thing I know, I'm handcuffed and told that I was under arrest for obstruction. And a couple of officers took me away put me in a paddy wagon. I was held downtown at city police headquarters for five hours, released and informed that I had to appear in court on February 1st. Now, you've been covering you know, stories like this for years. I understand that this is the first time that you've been arrested. Yes. <laughs> you know, I've been threatened with arrest before, when I have covered, you know, indigenous-led blockades or land defense actions, but this is the first time that I was, uh, you know, thrown in jail while on the job. Did that surprise you? I did, because I didn't expect it to happen so close to home. So I'm from Treaty 6 territory. I live just outside of Edmonton. I always thought that if something were to go down in these situations, that it would be, you know, somewhere out in a remote area uh, rather than, you know, in Edmonton. So, yeah, I was a, I was a little bit stunned. Mm -hmm. Now, you've been in touch with people who are living in these encampments. What are they saying about how the removal has affected them? Wow. You know, they are already living in survival mode, right, day to day. And, you know, having the police come in to do these so-called sweeps and throw all their belongings into a dump is very, very difficult. So I, I think just a lot of people are, you know, scrambling. The people that I've talked to that are out there living in these encampments, like, they don't want to go to the shelters. The shelters to them are scary to some of the women that I spoke to. They are dirty. You know, they have different infestations of bugs and lice. And it's just not an experience that they want to put themselves into. I mean, I checked the temperatures for Edmonton when these clearances were happening. It got below minus 30 with the wind chill around that time. Yeah. Where do people go when these encampments are taken down? If, if you're saying that they're not comfortable yeah. with the shelters. Well, you know, I went back uh, that evening after I was released from jail and the camp was still being cleared out. And one of the people that was taken from there. She's a 68-year-old grandma, 68-year-old Kokum, who was 
a residential school survivor, and she had been houseless for the last month, and they took her to an emergency Indigenous-led shelter called Niganan that had just been uh, set up. But there was another young man, his name was Chad, and he managed to grab his tent and some of his belongings, and he went just down the street and behind a chain-link fence overlooking the river valley there. And the next day I went back and I found his tent. Even though it was covered in snow, I seen a little bit of the blue nylon sticking out. And and I yelled out and I said, hello, because I couldn't cross over the chain link fence. Are you okay? And that was the day when it was like minus 33. And he was sitting in this tent and he goes, yeah, I'm cold, but I got some candles. And and that's where he, you know, had went. Now, the city is calling the encampments that were removed high risk. On Wednesday, Public Safety Minister Mike Ellis said the encampments are a safety issue. He called them, quote, gang-run drug camps. Mm-hmm. What do you make of that characterization? Yeah, I mean, I haven't visited every single encampment. So I did go out on the weekend with the Bear Claw Patrol and visited some other encampments other than the indigenous one that I had been at. I did not witness gang activity or, you know, these these dangers. And I'm sure that that exists. However, characterizing each one of the camps and the individuals living there as gang-ridden and, you know, dangerous, I think is unfair. I think a lot of these people are struggling with not being able to afford housing, with, you know, different trauma or mental health or other life situations that have got them, you know, to to where they're at. Now, there are some solutions that are being floated. The Alberta government also announced that it's going to open a reception center in order to redirect people out of the encampments and into existing services and resources. Do you think that's going to be an effective solution? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a band-aid solution for the emergency of the moment. There's over 3,000 people in the city right now that are experiencing homelessness, and 60% of those people that are experiencing it are Indigenous. So it's getting to the roots of why there is this crisis and addressing the injustices and the revolving doors of the different systems, you know, that our people are moving through from the residential school system that still affects our people through intergenerational trauma to the 60 scoop and the continual taking of our children in and out of the foster care system to the prison system, which our people overly represent across the country. I was speaking to the Grand Chief of the Confederacy of Treaty 6, and he said that they do not have enough resources from the federal government to even provide uh, adequate housing to their members on reserve, let alone deal with the crisis that's unfolding in urban areas. It's time to really dig in to the reasons and the roots and provide Indigenous-led resources and opportunities for our people to heal. Now, as a journalist, you've been open about how many of the stories you report on are things that you care about deeply that affect you 
personally. I, I can tell from the conversation that, that we've had that that is very true. Are there any, any moments from the last couple of days that are going to stay with you? I always deeply care and am passionate about the work that I do. But I think this one has affected me more deeply because I experienced the incarceration and, and I have not had the opportunity to decompress. I've had to go and continue doing this work, you know, going out on the street and seeing what is going on rather than listening to politicians that are standing at a podium, being in the thick of it. That's what has affected me, you know, more than any other story in recent mind. You're still facing obstruction charges. What happens next on that front? Well, I'm hoping that the charges will be dropped. I have to go for fingerprinting by January 30th and then show up for court in Edmonton on February 1st. I I really hope it doesn't come to that. I mean, this has been a massive stress. You know, it's only been about a week since it happened, but I've done a lot of questioning in regards to the work that I do. And this has really um, impeded a lot of that. And, you know, I just, I hope it doesn't come to it. But unfortunately, this is becoming the norm for journalists around Canada, all over the world, to be targeted and um, detained, you know, for being a witness. And uh, yeah. Brandy, thank you for speaking with us. Hi, hi. Thank you so much for sharing this experience. Brandy Morin is an award-winning freelance journalist from Stony Plain in Treaty 6 territory. Did she regret what she did? You see, even I do it. I just did it. Why do I think she's responsible? I don't know if she stabbed that soldier. All we know is that people shot her when she was running away. But does that make her guilty? Guilty because she was running away? Maybe she saw it happening and ran because she was scared. Did she deserve to be shot in the back for that? That's from a play called The Runner. It's written and performed by Canadian playwright Christopher Morris. It tells the fictional story of an Israeli emergency volunteer whose life is upended after he makes a split-second decision to give aid to a young Palestinian woman instead of an Israeli soldier. Earlier this month, after protests and petitions against it, the runner was cancelled by the Belfry Theatre in Victoria. At that time, Vancouver's Push Festival said it would stay the course and stage the play. Then last week, Push also decided to cancel it. Gabriel Martin is the Push Festival's Director of Programming. Gabriel, good morning and welcome to Day 6. Good morning. Thanks for having me. You made the decision to stage this play before the October 7th attacks. What did you see in The Runner that made you want to stage it in the first place? Well, you know, this is a story about one character. Um, He's an Israeli Zaka volunteer force uh, member, and that's a force that collects the remains of Jews who are killed. And this character is kind of caught between his humanist impulse. So at the beginning of the play, he makes a decision to save the life of a Palestinian woman. And the morals that are imposed on him by his social environment that tell him that that 
was not the thing to do. And, you know, throughout the work, he's really um, kind of unpacking the tensions that are upon him, you know, as he is going against his family and his community, and really as he's grappling with these conflicting ideologies while really kind of um, gravitating towards advocating for the equality of human life. So I think it's a interesting story for that. That's why I programmed it, because we're all complicit existing in societies that tell us to devalue others. And depending where we are in the world, um, that's more intense or extreme than other parts of the world. Um, And interestingly, now that we've canceled it, I mean, both before and after, you know, the pressure from community, both to have kept the play going and to cancel the play, it's been an extreme amount of pressure on our team. So I think it it kind of relates to, in a way, the theme of the story, like what do you do when you're trying to stay true to values that um, are not necessarily reflected in the community that you're in? And that's not, you know, across the board, but we are experiencing that at PUSH right now. Tell me more about that pressure. What was that like? What's been frustrating is there's very little dialogue. You know, there is valid critique of this work. Then there's also um, misconceptions by people who haven't read the work. You know, in the original petition that the Belfry Theatre received, you know, that petition, it took um, a lot of the text out of context. We've received an incredible amount of anger on social media, both for having programmed it and now for having cancelled it. Um, You know, a very few emails or phone calls that are really looking to have a conversation or um, from a perspective of understanding complexity, I I suppose, uh, a surprising lack of interest in asking the kind of questions you're asking right now. Now, last week, you spoke with one of our Day 6 producers. At that time, you had decided to stand your ground and, and stage the play in spite of this criticism. Why? We weren't standing our ground just to stand our ground. Um, there was a couple factors. One is relationships with artists. Um, so we, it's actually been more than two years that we've been in conversation with Christopher Morris, um, the playwright of The Runner. Uh, so honoring that. Um, and also there is a, a lot of misconception around this play. So I just tried to continue to express why it was programmed because there was a rationale, thoughtful rationale, and not just by myself, but also other people who weighed into the curatorial decisions and, and partners. And then that changed really when we sat down and had an in-depth conversation with Basil Zara, who is the Palestinian artist behind the work Dear Layla in the festival. He has lived experience that's related to the conflict that this piece talks about. And, um, you know, this work, well, any work will always be experienced differently by different communities, right? Which can create a beautiful opportunity for dialogue. What we hope that the the festival inspires, which is an opportunity for self-reflection, better understanding others' experiences, and and can be a a starting point for discussion and dialogue, building blocks for change, really, and, and empathy. And at the same time, you know, how a work is experienced is also defined by what's happening around the theater. It's not just, you know, when you're sitting in the theater, it's when you come into the theater, it's all the references you have in your mind, given the times. It's our responsibility to take all that into consideration. So you mentioned that you had a conversation with a Palestinian artist, Basil Zara, who's also part of this festival. Was that what made you change your mind? What what changed your mind? Yeah, absolutely. It was in conversation with him and he was really clear. He feels um, that the runner is, um, does not portray Palestinian in a helpful way that disrupts uh, colonial narrative. 
you know, he felt it was really missing a context for the wider Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the history of that. And that by having a play that doesn't fully flesh out the Palestinian characters, that yes, it's it's creating a, or furthering a, a colonial narrative. And really, you know, Basil's work is, it's an installation. He has created a miniature of the home that he grew up in, in the Yarmouk refugee camp in um, Damascus. And it's very much about um, the experience of war and exile on his family. Um, very poignant for him now, more than, you know, the rest of us who are a little or a lot more distanced personally from um, what's going on in the region. And, you know, Christopher is a Canadian, um, he's not a Jewish artist. You know, he's made a really great work and he wants that great play to be seen. Um, but Christopher, you know, acknowledged that if his work would get in the way of a Palestinian artist's work being heard and seen at this time, then then he would not want that. Palestinian voices are very underrepresented in Canadian theatre and performing arts. Um, and I think that it is very important also to note that we do have a Jewish artist at the festival. We do have an Israeli artist in the festival. None of those works are funded by the Israeli government, but we. this is not about closing the door on cultural perspective that is Jewish or Israeli. Um, and, and that's something that also uh, Basil made clear too. It was about the narrative. So those are all the things that kind of weighed into our decision. Now, you talk about uh, Basil Zara's work. Now, he did say that he wouldn't be part of the Push Festival if you staged The Runner. Are you comfortable with the idea of one artist, you know, whoever that is, having a veto over what else is in your festival? Um, would we have liked to present both works? Yes. Um, it's situational, you know. There's always going to be different influences and perspectives that are, affect our curation at different times. There's always going to be decisions being made. This time it's been very public, um, and we chose Dear Layla for the reasons mentioned. Um, I don't think we're setting a standard where, well, next time it's always going to be the artists that define our curation. I mean, the dynamics and the realities are constantly shifting. And in this situation, this was the decision we made. And I think a testament to that decision is that both the artists are in a good place with us. They both feel respected. Um, and that is, you know, upholding one of our, our key values. So I don't want to give a lot of energy to that kind of setting the precedent conversation. Um, is this ideal for us to cancel a show last minute? Absolutely not, um, which is why we've we've taken great care um, in our relationship with Christopher. Um, yeah. Now, your community is weighing in, but cultural critics are too. Uh, Marsha Lederman, who's a columnist with The Globe and Mail, she wrote about this uh, in a recent opinion piece. Here's what she wrote. The more than 380 people who signed a petition calling for Push to cancel the play include artists, authors, and booksellers. What kind of a world are we living in when it's artists who are calling for art to be censored? How would you answer that? I would agree. I think that ideally we can be in a space where um, there can be works that we don't agree with, but where there's space to say that, you know, and also where there's opportunity for people to to fully experience the work. We have a podcast series at Push. So we've interviewed Basil, we've interviewed Christopher, which is a great opportunity. That's like one way that we invite our public to actually kind of understand the thought process and the research behind the work and where the artist is coming from a little bit more. Um, there can be multiple truths. And I think that's what's really hard. But really, it's that we feel that our truth is the one truth. 
And that really gets in the way of understanding that actually there's multiple truths that are coexisting. Um, and so that's what, where we're really stuck at push right now is that there are people that are saying, my truth is that this work is harmful. And there's other people saying that my truth is that not showing this work is harmful. And I'll just go back to like what has been kind of a driving force for us, which is our relationships and our relationships with the artists. Um, we also have relationships with community, but as you can see, <laughs> our community is diverse, which is a wonderful thing, but it also means that we cannot make all of our community happy. We have people saying they're going to pull out of the festival if we do this, people saying they're going to pull out of the festival if we do the other thing. So really, we've distilled it to to those we have relationships with. And also just you know responding, we could say, oh, we wish that Basil didn't make that ultimatum for us. But he did. And you know he has the right to. He has the right to say, like, what are the conditions for his presentation? And then it's up to us to respond. We're saying, okay, we hear that. Given what we have on the table, what are our options? Well, we see that there's a huge deficit of you know work by Palestinian artists in Canada right now. And we see that Christopher's okay. Christopher has also just premiered an incredible work called Tremblement in Montreal, which had a sold out run at Espace Go, wonderful reviews. And you know it's not the end of his career. Um, these are the nuances that people are unable to hear right now about our decision-making. I can imagine that this has not been an easy decision to reach. The, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict feels like an immensely difficult thing to talk about, ever more so over the last, last three months. What have you learned as you've come to this decision about the runner? I've learned just how much pain and anger is all around us and um, that people really need an outlet and really need to feel like they're doing something about it. You know, whether it is um, petitioning for us to cancel and really kind of rallying against push for having programmed the runner, whether it's rallying against push now for having canceled it. Um, you know, and I think that it's unfortunate because I think with everything that's going on, I'm just going to say it, I think that there are better avenues for organized advocacy right now than push. You know, I think that actually um, there's bigger problems, specifically also with regard to this conflict. There's a number of avenues, you know, political pressure that can be engaged right now that um, I think could have some more profound and immediate results. But I think that push is an easy target. And we're a small organization. Yeah, and we're feeling it. And, you know, Kelty Forsyth, who's our director of operations, myself, we are mothers of young children, relatively new leaders. We're doing our best. Uh, this is making it quite hard for us. So, you know, but just to say, it's like, we're trying to do what we can do. And um, I think that a lot of people really want to feel like they can do something right now. And they feel like push is the place where they can kind of express that frustration. Are you satisfied with how all of this has ended? I mean, it's not an ideal situation, but I will say, you know, what's a triumph for us is our relationships with Basil and Christopher. Um, so I think that we feel satisfied with, with that, with knowing that we acted in that way, with um, the transparency that we've had, which honestly has made us more of a target. Um, but we chose to be transparent about all the conversations we've been having, which comes at a cost, it comes at a great cost, actually. Um, but that is also a value that we have and that we're moving in the world with. And it comes with, um, it comes with consequences. Well, Gabriel, uh, thank you so much for speaking with us today. I mean, a lot of people in your position would have, would have chosen not to do so. So I really appreciate you being candid about this. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Gabriel Martin is the Director of Programming with Vancouver's Push Festival.
Still to come on day six, Rift from the Headlines, our weekly musical news quiz, and your chance to win a day six tote bag. The climate is changing, so are we. I'm Laura Lynch, and I host What on Earth? That's CBC's Climate Solutions Podcast. Twice a week, we take you around the world to find the people who are trying to build a better future for all of us. We explore Indigenous science, new technologies. We talk openly about mental health and climate anxiety. We also take your smart questions all the time. Come find What on Earth wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Manjula Salvaraja, in for Brent Bambury. You're listening to Day 6 from CBC Radio. We're on public radio stations across the United States. Listen on demand with the CBC Listen app. We're available wherever you get your podcasts and at cbc.ca slash day6. We hear a lot about the value of stories, that stories are powerful, therapeutic, that they can change the world. But is that mostly bull? Documentaries are supposed to be impactful, yes, but they're also entertainment. They're being sold, right? That's from the trailer for a new podcast called Shocking, Heartbreaking, Transformative. It's about what happens when someone becomes the subject of a documentary or nonfiction podcast. Specifically, it's about the ways people's lived experiences get packaged into a product for public consumption. Audio producer Jess Shane is the host of the podcast. Jess, welcome to Day 6. Thanks so much for having me. You've been making documentaries for nearly a decade now, but there's a moment when someone approaches you to be in their documentary. They flip the script on you. What happened? I mean, it was an interesting moment at which this a television producer approached me about being in a documentary TV show was working, she was working on because I was in the midst of having a bit of a personal crisis about what it means to make documentaries about other people's personal lives. So when this woman kind of out of the blue reached out to me about appropriating a documentary I'd made about myself years prior for her television documentary, I was a bit like, Ooh, I know way too much to let anyone be in charge of my story. So, I mean, it was perfect timing. So I said, sure, let's talk. But then I kind of flipped the script and decided to interview her about what she thought that I would have to get out of being in a documentary. I mean, almost to interview myself because, you know, I've been in her position so many times. And what was it that she said that made you think, hmm? I I kind of was asking these questions that documentary subjects don't really know to ask necessarily. Like, how much control will I have over what happens with this? Will I be paid? Um, Who owns this when it's done? What do you think I'll have to get out of this? These direct questions that I don't think are usually asked because people have a real real mythos about the grandeur and the the importance and the inherent value of telling your story. Um, So I knew to ask all those questions. And when I did, I got back these answers that I'd heard. I know that I was familiar with because I had used them before, but they sort of rung hollow. Hmm. Now, in the podcast, you reveal that that at one point in your career, you saw storytelling and documentary production as, as this noble art form. 
was was it after this conversation that that idea started to fall apart for you or it sounded like you were already there yeah i mean i think it was a slow a slow dawning i mean what i talk about in the first episode was i made my first ever documentary i went into it having this strong idealization of how transformative the experience was going to be for the person i was representing who was my childhood neighbor who was a teenager at the time after I made the documentary. I mean, I spent like, I really overdid it. Like I didn't know what I was doing at the time. So I interviewed her for so many hours. I interviewed her for such a long time. I was like totally all over the place. I didn't really know what I wanted, but kind of in the process, I was really present in her life during this period that was very challenging for her. And at a certain point, she stopped being really interested in being in the documentary anymore because she was a bit like, I want to just feel my feelings and not have you lurking there like telling me to talk about them, processing them out loud, because it's really vulnerable. And that was sort of the first clue. I was like, ooh, she's not really enjoying this anymore. But then I sent it to her the night before it aired on CBC, on this show that used to exist called The Doc Project. And she called me back and she, actually her mom called me and was like, she hates this. She She's not feeling, she's feeling kind of betrayed. She thought that you you didn't frame this right. And, you know, she, she was really upset. And then I talked to her and she was, she felt really betrayed because I'd really positioned the whole experience as sort of collaborative. But in the, at the end of the day, I picked pieces of tape and I think it's, it's really hard to hear somebody else's version of your life. Like, I mean, when I listen back to the documentary today, like I still believe that it's an accurate representation of what I observed. It just turns out that what I thought was important wasn't the same as what she thought was important. So you decide to make a podcast in which you'll throw out a lot of the roles. You post an ad on Craigslist. You tell people you'll pay them, that they'll have editorial input. Why did you do that? What did you hope to learn? I think that something that the series that I made relies on is this idea that I felt like I'd never acknowledged directly with any documentary subjects or interviewees that I'd worked with, where like right now, like we're having an interview and there's like a bit of an exchange happening, but we're not talking about that. Like, you know, I've made a product and you have a product. Your product is day six. I've made a series. It's like more niche. You know, maybe some people that listen to this are going to hear it and then they're going to go listen to my series, which will be good for me. Like I'm here because I'm getting publicity out of being on this show. And you are talking to me because you need to produce a show. And so for me here, this is a fair exchange, but I think that a lot of the time people aren't really thinking through and don't have like the the inside knowledge to think through what's happening. You know, if someone says like, Hey, do you want to be in a documentary? People are thinking like, Oh, I'm going to get to tell my story. Maybe I'm going to get famous. Maybe people will give me money. I think people have all these sort of half baked ideas about what it being in the media is going to do for them. And so, and I think that journalists often are allowing that unspoken agreement to go unchallenged. And all of these rules that are also unquestioned come along with that. Like they ask like, oh, so is this paid? And it's like, oh, no, 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 it's not paid. We don't pay, we don't pay people in journalism because it could create coercion. And it's like, well, we're not talking about the coercion that's happening just because you're so stoked that you're going to be interviewed by the CBC, <laughs> you know? So where have you arrived? Do you think there's a place for these, for these rules and conventions? I do. I think that when I began to work in documentary, I didn't, I didn't go to journalism school. 
I didn't know what I was doing. And I just watched a lot of like online material. Like I watched Ira Glass being like storytelling lets you imagine what it's like to be someone else. <laughs> I think that there was a very narrow way in which this notion of storytelling was taught to me. And it was, a, it was literally a formula. It was like, you need to take a person who has some kind of deep motivation. There's a video on YouTube, like you can find it. It's like how to tell a great story. It's Iris, you die, you know, and she's like, you need a character with a motivation, a specific character with motivation. And then they are going to do something and they're going to either succeed or they're not. And so it's this very like person faces an obstacle idea. And so when I was trying to like pitch stories, I was always like, well, who's the main character? What's their deep motivation and what obstacle are they going to come up against? You can see very quickly how that becomes conducive to a sort of like trauma based and neoliberal idea of events in the world. Like we're always looking at world issues through the individual and through the individual's capacity to rise to the occasion or not, you know? So, I mean, I think that we really need to ask questions about this formula that I think is the easiest way to tell a story, but is not necessarily one that represents the world in a nuanced way and politically engaged way that I think is actually more useful and effective for media. If we're not just talking about pure entertainment, actually one of my subjects, Ernesto in the series, like we talk about this process at the end and I tell him about this formula, this idea of the log line, like person faces an obstacle and comes to some conclusion. Ernesto is like, well, what about the obstacles facing the person and what that does to them? And I'm like, oh yeah, and I think that that brings me to like the kind of story that I'm more interested in telling. You know, I'm more interested in flipping that formula. I'm less interested in personal stories as like a guiding building block of the work that I want to do. I think so much rests its laurels on this mythos of documentary that often ends up letting people down. And I think that that's part of what happened with um, the teenage gymnast. But you tell good stories. <laughs> I've just yeah. listened to your podcast. You tell good stories. Do you see yourself ever doing more personal storytelling in the future? I made this series into a good story, but you know, I made myself into the main character because I knew what I was getting myself into. And I created a performative premise that couched these issues that I wanted to create inside a compelling story of me, a documentarian facing an obstacle and maybe succeeding and maybe not me being a person with a deep motivation. You know, I used the formula on myself, but it was a trick, you know, and I think that sometimes storytellers do this really beautiful, like Connie Walker has done this so amazingly where she like, you think that it's a true crime story, but like really it's a, it's a story about history and inequity. And, um, and she kind of like uses the tropes of storytelling that hook you in, but then they kind of surprise you by flipping and becoming stories about systems. And I think that that can be, you know, mobilized very effectively. So, I mean, I, I think these, we just need to be mindful of how we're using these tools and mindful of how we're training audiences to be passive listeners who feel like they are becoming better just by virtue of having heard, who feel like they are empathetic by virtue of having listened and felt something. And it's like, well, we have to remember that that's not, feeling something is not the same as doing something. But am I going to keep doing this work? Yeah, I love making documentaries. I love, I love um, interviewing people. I love editing. But I think that something that I have come to realize is that often like, I thought that the thing that was most important to me was to make work that was like transformative for the world and transformative to people, the people involved. 
But I've realized that that is often at odds with my need to make a living and to deliver products. And that actually like the art of it is also important to me, maybe as important to me as like making a difference. And I think I never really owned that within myself before. And that was where part of the discomfort was coming from. But I really think I'm going to be shifting the way that I tell stories and not allow myself to profit off of somebody else's pain because the industry has told me that that's a fast, easy, surefire way to make an entertaining story. Jess, it's been such a pleasure having you on day six. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Jess Shane is an audio and documentary producer. Her podcast is called Shocking, Heartbreaking, Transformative. It's out now from Radiotopia. Rift from the Headlines. This is Rift from the Headlines, our weekly quiz. Three riffs linked by one story in the news. If you guess the story that links the riffs, you could win a day six tote bag. First, here's a recap. This is last week's clue. There's a mouse in the house, everybody get down, come on. There's a mouse in the house. There's a mouse in the house, everybody get down, come on. There's a mouse in the house. There's a mouse in the house, everybody get down, come on. There's a mouse in the house. Mike O'Neill with Tidy Up, Lana Del Rey with Put Me in a Movie, and Mark Andre with Mouse in the House. Henry Coe of Montreal correctly guessed the headline we were looking for, Mouse Caught on Camera Tidying Up a Man's Shed Every Night. Henry, congratulations. A Day 6 tote bag will be on its way to you soon. Now, here's this week's clue. Who let the dogs out? story that connects those riffs. Email us your answer, put rift from the headlines in the subject, and send it to day6 at cbc.ca. Please include your mailing address because one right answer will be picked at random. The prize is a day6 tote bag. You can listen to the clue again anytime at cbc.ca slash day6. From the headlines. And that's our show for this week. Day Six was produced by Lori Allen, McKenna Hadley Burke, Sarah Melton, and Pedro Sanchez. Our intern is Ishita Chopra. Our senior producer is Gord Westmacott. I'm Manjula Salvaraja in for Brent Bambury. Thanks for listening to Day Six.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.